It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder and violence against women. True crime media, like all mass media, is haunted by certain archetypes. The dedicated detective. The neighbor who always keeps to himself. The flabbergasted residents of a small town unaccustomed to locking their doors at night. The smiling family man with a dark secret. The grieving relative who refuses to give up hope. And then there's the hitchhiker. The hitchhiker is usually a young woman, at least in the realm of true crime media. She's in danger. We know that, but she probably doesn't. She's just trying to get somewhere. Nowadays, outside of certain pockets in the United States, 
She's a ghost from the past. Picture a hippie chick thumbing it on the side of the road. Maybe her reliance on the kindness of strangers seems naive to us now, but it was a different time then, we say. No matter where she is or where she's going, the hitchhiker is a figure standing in a liminal space, on the concrete between the ditch and the open passenger door of a waiting car. If she's unlucky enough that her story eventually hits the true crime circuit, she's a woman who never made it to her destination. Today, we're going to talk about one of those women, really just a young girl, 17-year-old Simone Stephanie Reidinger. She left her workplace, the Rainbow Restaurant at 9 South Main Street in Natick, Massachusetts, on Friday, September 2nd, 1977. She was set to spend Labor Day weekend on Martha's Vineyard with her mother. Simone was fiercely independent. She declined multiple ride offers, intending to hitchhike to get where she needed to go. But she never made it to the vineyard. Like many of you, I spend a lot of downtime scrolling through websites like The Charlie Project and NamUs. The Charlie Project is a terrific resource run by Megan Good cataloging cold cases involving missing persons. The National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, or NAMUS, is a clearinghouse for missing, unidentified, and unclaimed individuals, funded by the National Institute of Justice. Recently, my late-night true crime searches gave me an idea. I ran terms like restaurant, fast food, diner, and other eatery-related words through both websites and I cataloged the cases I found on the murder sheet. Because we want to cover more missing persons cases, especially the ones that never received a huge national spotlight. The disappearance of Simone Reidinger was one such case. We wanted to know more about this young woman, and how she disappeared. We decided to reach out to the detectives still looking for her, nearly 45 years after she last walked out of her waitressing shift and vanished into the summer afternoon, like a mirage off a hot road. You have reached the Sherburn Police Department. If this is an emergency, please hang up and dial 911. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenley. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout Season 1 to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the Murder Sheet, and this is Lost Rainbow, The Disappearance of Simone Reidinger.
We realized pretty quickly that we would need to cover Simone's disappearance. It's a poignant story. A young woman going through major changes in her life, trying to forge her own way. The disappearance itself is baffling. Investigators have no crime scene to work off of. The family has been left with no body to bury. Almost all we have amounts to a truly bizarre, even chilling potential sighting. One that, quite frankly, doesn't even make sense. By contacting the Sherborne Police Department, the lead agency on this case, we learned that James Godino is the detective tasked with sorting this all out. He has worked as a detective for the police department in Sherborne, Massachusetts since 2012. He also happens to be the small department's one and only detective. Detective Godino is not alone on this case, though. He works with a Natick detective who has run down a lot of leads, and he's also received some help from the FBI and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. We'll get more into the jurisdictional and geographical basics of this case in a little bit, but first, let's meet Detective Godino. He told us he tackled the case just like anyone would. He started from the very beginning. You read the case, you, you read through the, the reports that we have, you read through whatever documents or materials were collected. Uh, you know, I hate to say it, but there wasn't a, there wasn't a wealth of information in there, um, but there was a wealth of questions. Um, and basically what I did was put together a list of just common sense questions. You know, we have a missing girl from 1977, and she lived in Framingham. She worked in Natick, and her mother lived in Sherburne. Okay, so she was last reported seen at work. Well... Who, who last saw her? You know, that's a pretty important question when you're talking about last seen leaving the Rainbow Restaurant because that's what everything in the case file indicated and that's an answer we didn't have. You know, who did she work with? Uh, what did they have to say? What did this person that last saw her have to say? Um, right out of the gate, those were initial questions. Was she dating anyone? Was she hanging out with anyone? Who were her friends? Did they talk to her? You know, obviously there weren't cell phones and social media platforms back then, but, you know, people still used the landline and called friends once in a while, called family, that type of stuff. Um, you know, where did she hang out? You know, all these these very, very investigation 101 type questions are questions that I would go through and ask. And if I didn't have the answer, then that was one of the steps that needed to be taken. And a lot of the reason we did some of the, out, the media outreach that you see, you know, I don't know, if, if, like if you Google her name, for example, do a Google search or an internet search on her name, you'll see some of the articles that were pushed out by the Sherman Police Department in an attempt to collect answers to those questions. You know, for example, the Metro West Daily News article, that was a, a number of years ago now, but, um, you know, that really was to collect you know, may, you know anyone who worked at the Rainbow Restaurant with her, um, anyone who maybe lived in the apartment uh, that she had just gotten with her, because those are people we did not have names on, we did not have statements from, at least upon my review of the file. You know, I didn't see those those things in there. So those were very, very, you know, very important things to try and get a hold of, particularly the the, the place where she was last seen leaving. So it was basically starting from scratch, but looking at what you had and asking the, the basic questions is kind of where I started. You know, once you start gathering witnesses on a case or locations on a case, you know, look into those places, look into those 
those people trying to get interviews, see what they have to say. You know, they'll mention somebody, they'll mention another place, and then you go to that person, you know. Just pretty much following the little cookie crumbs and just following one to the next one. And that's kind of how we've been investigating it. As Detective Godino followed that trail of cookie crumbs, he began to almost get to know Simone on some level. He interviewed loved ones, friends, and co-workers. Each one shed light on who she was as a person. Every, every single person that I've spoken to kind of described her as like a, a free spirit type. Very independent, kind of walks to the beat of her own drum type, but very, very friendly, very kind-hearted, trusting, but not naive, um, I guess is, is kind of how she was described best. A little bit of a rebel at times. Her stepsister, who I've been in contact with the most, really, on this case, and she's been a great help, particularly because she's so close still, kind of described her in that manner the most, that free spirit, independent, kind-hearted, but not naive, not foolish, not, not overly trusting, but at times had that little rebel streak in her, but a good person. That's kind of kind of where, where it was left with, with many people. And that strong desire for independence led Simone to take a step that set her apart from many 17-year-olds. She got a place on her own. Simone and her mother even went looking for apartments together. That may sound unusual, but context is important here. For years, Simone's family unit had consisted of her mother, her stepfather, and her stepsister, Betsy. Simone and her mother had moved next to Betsy and her father in Chappaquin, New York. Sparks flew between the two single parents, and soon, the blended family was moving to Sherborne, Massachusetts. In 2020, Betsy spoke to the Boston Globe about her upbringing with her younger sister, Simone, where she described adventures in ice skating and horseback riding. But things had changed. The family kind of went their separate ways, like... Simone's mother had a bit of a falling out with Mr. Ridinger, which was Simone's obviously adopted father, her, her stepfather, so to speak. And they kind of all went their, their separate ways for a number of reasons. It was, you know, ongoing for years until they ended up parting ways. And, you know, Simone's mom stayed in Sherburne. Simone's stepfather, Mr. Ridinger, and his daughter, Simone's stepsister, went into a place in Holliston. And Simone kind of hung her hat at the house in, in Sherburne that her mother was in, but also ended up getting into her own place uh, apartment in Framingham. Listen carefully to what Detective Godino says next, because this is one area of the case where he could really use the public's help. Simone was living in Framingham in a downstairs apartment by herself. There were housemates and stuff that lived above her, and uh, we were able to identify the the actual residence that she was in um, via, you know, drive-throughs of the town with, with the stepsister, because she had gone there a few times. Um, she had frequented uh, Simone's apartment, just so we could kind of glean, you know, the exact location, the re- you know, the apartment building that she was in, and any recollection of these housemates, and Simone's stepsister didn't recall ever, ever seeing any tension or issues between Simone and the apartment and the housemates, but needless to say, she was living in, living in Framingham. So remember the address, 29 Linden Street in Framingham, Massachusetts. Did you live there around the summer of 77? Spend time there? Think you know someone who did? Reach out to Detective Godino. 
We included contact information in our show notes and at the end of this episode. Anyways, the move happened in July or August of 1977, so it was pretty recent for Simone as of that Labor Day weekend. We don't want to speculate too much, but it sounds like this young woman was dealing with some pretty big life changes and looking to dive into being an independent young adult. And that meant getting a job to support herself. While she was living in Framingham and visiting her mom in Sherbourne, she was working in the town of Natick. Natick and Sherbourne are both towns in Massachusetts's Middlesex County. This area is known as the Bay State's Metro West region. Natick is about a six-minute drive to the north of Sherbourne, according to Google Maps. For the benefit of everyone who's not familiar with this part of Massachusetts, here's Detective Godino to break down what the area was like back then and how it's changed since. Yeah, I mean, Sherbourne honestly hasn't changed a ton. Um, obviously, it's, it's grown, obviously, but it really was like that farm esque community back then it's kind of changed more into like the maybe like a you know boston kind of bedroom community so to speak but it still has that small town country farmish feel to it there's still a lot of farms in town and it was really all residential back then it's really all residential to this day natick was probably more similar to sherburne back then than it is now uh, you know it's a much more kind of bustling community. There's a ton of business downtown. Um, There's a lot of business off of Route 9, the Natick Mall, and all that stuff. So they've kind of blown up a lot more. Um, It's a much bigger town anyways, but I'd say that's much more of a business-type town than than Sherburne, where it's almost exclusively residential to this day. We also wanted to know more about the Rainbow Room itself. This was the place where Simone was last seen, so it seemed important to get information on what the restaurant was like. Was it just a small town joint or an establishment with a reputation as colorful as its name? The Rainbow Restaurant really was like that small town diner, you know, that everyone would go, you know, all the people from town would go to for breakfast, lunch, that type of thing. Closed early, it wasn't a dinner joint, but it was really like your breakfast nook in town. It was right in the center of downtown Natick. The building still exists today, and, you know, it remained as a breakfast nook kind of cafe, bakery type of place all the way up until this day. A lot of the townsfolk would go there for, for their breakfast, for, for their lunch, for their coffee, people that were working in town. It was it was pretty pretty busy place from what I've heard from the people that I spoke to who've worked there and you know the people that had the opportunity to, to, to go there back when it was around. So it was kind of like that uh, small town cafe, bakery, you know, breakfast joint. After taking on Simone's case, Detective Godino began looking closely at the Rainbow Restaurant. He told us that he's spoken with the eatery's frequent flyers and former townies, as well as Simone's friends, who she hung out with in the summer of 77. But most importantly, he tracked down the co-workers who were some of the last people to see Simone alive. Through our outreach, we believe we were able to get a hold of the two waitresses that were working with her that last day. And actually one that happened to be <laughs> skipping school that day and, and eating lunch at the time. So there was three former employees there, you know, allegedly that were with her the last day she was closing up shop and, and heading to the Cape. They remember talking to her about this trip. They had some concerns because she had told them she was going to hitchhike down there. So they were concerned not about necessarily hitchhiking because they said every, we all did it. Everyone did it back then. It wasn't uncommon for people to hitchhike some 
what have you. But they were concerned about the distance of the hitchhiking trip that she was looking to go on, which is, you know, from Natick all the way to the Cape, which is pretty decent distance. I mean, you're looking at probably an hour and a half ride, give or take. And they told her that they didn't think it was a great idea. She just didn't seem to be concer- as concerned as they were. Her sister, her stepsister, um, who I've spoken to a bunch, stopped in for lunch the day before. Um, and she recalled offering her a ride down there. She said she would give her a ride, but Simona told that she had planned to just come down there and, and wasn't concerned about making it down to the Cape. So these these things all kind of came to the surface, you know, in the days leading up to her decision to thumb down. Um, but, you know, they were called having that conversation with her. Uh, they were called uh, her, you know, getting off. They, they described it, they said it around like 2-ish, 2 p.m. Uh, we've had, we've heard 3, 3.30, we've heard 2, 2.30, but give or take, early afternoon is when she, she ended up finishing her shift. They were called her changing up into the, the t-shirt, blue jeans, kept her little uh, high top, the white high tops on, and threw her duffel bag over her shoulder with a uniform in it, and she, they said as soon as she got out the door, immediately started thumbing. They said, uh, like, southbound. So if you're at the Rainbow Restaurant, I believe it's at the intersection of Route 27 and 135, like right smack dab in Natick Center, basically. Go if you if you go southbound out of that business, it's southbound on 27 back towards Sherburn. Um, it wouldn't be uh, unusual for to her to maybe thumb back to her mom's house and, and then you know change up, get what she needed because she still obviously had a, a, a fair amount of belongings there, and then maybe make her plans to go go down to the Cape from there. So we've mentioned that Simone intended to head to Martha's Vineyard for the long holiday weekend. Here's Detective Godino to tell us more about Simone's plans for that Labor Day. Her intention was to leave work and meet her mother down on the vineyard. Now, obviously, to get to the vineyard, she's got to get to the Cape. And her destination really, in general, was to get on the ferry and and get over to Martha's Vineyard that way through Lyannisport there. So... Her, her intention was to, to meet her mom on the vineyard. They were going to be there for, you know, the long weekend. See, Simone's mother, Jane Barrett, had access to a Barrett family-owned residence on Chappaquiddick Island, a peninsula connected to Martha's Vineyard. Yes, that's the very same Chappaquiddick where the late Senator Ted Kennedy left Mary Jope Kopechny to drown in a car in 1969. Given the opulent reputation of Martha's Vineyard and its various communities, including Chappaquiddick, the fact that Simone's family had property there sounds quite fancy. But Detective Godino told us the reality was far less glitzy. It was kind of an off-the-grid place, too. There was no power, no... uh, I don't even think there was electricity there, no phone lines, nothing like that. It was really just like a, a, a beach bungalow escape that the family would go to quite often in the summers and you know Simone and and her mother would enjoy going there uh, with family and friends quite often so this wasn't something that Simone would have likely blew off you know it wouldn't be unlike her to maybe be a day late but not miss it entirely and and miss it without any any warning so yeah her mom had had plans to go down there for the for the long Labor Day weekend there she went down there with, at the time, she was seeing a man from Sherburn, and they went down there together and had offered to give, you know, Simone a ride down there, um, but Simone 
explained that she would simply she she'd simply meet them down there. Um, so they they had left Friday with the expectation that Simone would be there Saturday. So um, obviously that didn't come to fruition. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roco slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roco slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now, earlier, we said that Simone's co-workers were likely some of the last people to see her alive. Well, we were very careful to hedge that statement. The next possible witness sighting is frankly a confounding one. In 1986, nearly a decade after Simone disappeared, an elderly man came forward to police after a local newspaper ran an article about the case. As a side note, Detective Godino looked through the archives and he confirmed that such a story did indeed run in the Metro West Daily News the day before this person called in his tip. On some level, the story that Detective Godino is about to describe is hard to believe. The details are just so odd. But there are elements of the story that also make it difficult to discard altogether. Seeing that picture of Simone, according to him, uh, conjured up some memories of giving a girl a ride to the Cape, and he contacted Sherburn PD and came in, you know, you know, at the drop of a hat a couple minutes later after calling us, 
uh, back then. He, he had stopped in, and one of the officers at the time interviewed him. And, you know, that's where he had reported he was on his way to the Cape. He was, at the time, retired and into, like, building clocks as a hobby, <clears throat> which, uh, you know, I verified with his, his son, who's still alive today. Obviously, this gentleman has long since passed, but which is unfortunate, but because this is the only interview on record that I can find anywhere with our department or, or anyone for that matter. Um, but uh, he was on the way to the Cape. He took, I think it was, I think it's 95 Route 128 and had gotten pulled over. Allegedly, he, he described it as a state trooper. Was it a state trooper? You know, I've been trying to verify this story for, for the past, you know, seven years, but trying to verify a 45-year-old story is, can be difficult at times, but he says he was pulled over by the trooper. And, uh, the trooper had learned he obviously was going to the Cape and had mentioned that he had a girl with him um, that he had picked up and wanted to see if this older gentleman, who was, uh, I believe, he would have been... 72, I think, at the time. He had, uh, he had asked this gentleman if he would give her a ride home and, or a ride to the Cape because that's where she had told the trooper she was going, allegedly, and this guy took her up on it. Now, the most interesting thing about this whole story really is the description that he provided, which was never public until I decided to make it public after getting some verification on, on this description. You know, he had mentioned that the girl was around 16 to 18, you know, 5'7 to 135, which is a little bit bigger than Simone actually was. But those particular descriptions obviously vary quite a bit from witness to witness. Um, you know, dark brown hair, medium build, kind of curly hair. All, all that stuff kind of jives outside of, the, uh, outside of the height and weight. But the most interesting thing is his, the description of her clothing, where he indicated that she had worn blue jeans. He described... Some of the descriptions that he mentioned were, were quite interesting or, or almost odd, but he had said, you know, she had been wearing grubby white sneakers, um, a blue pullover blouse, and carrying a small gray duffel. He made some comments about um, small talk, and he had mentioned that he was from Framingham, and she had mentioned that she was from the next town over, which jives with Sherburn as it borders Framingham. You know, she told him she hitchhiked a lot, and he had mentioned, you know, it's dangerous. You never know who you're going to meet. And she had told him that she met a lot of nice people doing it. This kind of speaks to her maybe trusting attitude. Next thing he reported was that he dropped her off at the airport rotary and saw her walking toward, at the time, there was a ground round restaurant and a Howard Johnson's, I believe, in that area. And that's what he said he had done with this, with this girl. Dropped her off, and that was the last he ever saw of her. The reason the description about, you know, her blue jeans, the grubby white sneakers, this blue blouse and a gray duffel is of significant interest to me is because, you know, lo and behold, 35, 40 years later, we put out an article in the Metro West um, Daily News in our area now, just looking to see, because there wasn't a lot of case file documents reporting interviews with coworkers of hers, which obviously if she's last seen leaving work, might might want to talk to some coworkers. Uh, I didn't see a ton of that in there. Um, you know, maybe it wasn't documented. Maybe it's been lost in the, the decades since the incident, but I didn't see much in terms of, you know, who was she, she was working with on that last day. So we put that article out with the hope that, you know, former waitresses, former, you know, cooks or owners of the Rainbow Restaurant would see it that might still be around. And sure enough, we did get a lot of feedback. We actually, I got called by, I think, five former waitresses there, all of which were called Simone, which was 
quite a nice <laughs> um, turn of events for the case. And in speaking to one uh, or two of them, they had mentioned kind of a funny story about the, the waitress uniform. It was a blue pullover blouse and a, and a blue skirt, like a polyester blue. And the girls were like, we, you know, <laughs> they all were, they all said how much they hated this uniform um, and how uncomfortable it was. So they all brought a change of clothes. They explained that Simone would always come in blue jeans, a white T-shirt, carrying a little small duffel bag. And before leaving, none of them wanted to be caught dead in this waitress uniform, so they'd all change and get into the clothes that they, they arrived in before leaving. And Simone would throw her uniform in the small duffel bag that she would have and, and leave in her, her blue jeans. And she always wore white high-top sneakers as well, which kind of jives with this gentleman saying those those grubby white sneakers. So the chances that these two people are reporting a very similar, if not almost exact description of her clothing that know nothing of each other. And it's just, you know, it's tough to think that it's just mere coincidence. So, you know, this story from this gentleman is, at this point in time, we haven't been able to confirm or deny that it's fact or not, which is frustrating and keeps it quite relevant in the case. And if it is true, you know, and this gentleman did drop her off down there, then it eliminates a lot of other very interesting pieces of this case that um, have, have come to the surface, you know, over the past several years as well. So going forward, we'll just call this witness the clockmaker, given his hobby. This lead left us both pretty baffled, particularly the detail about the law enforcement officer dropping a hitchhiker off with a random stranger. At the very least, Detective Godino believes it could be an important piece of the puzzle. He saw the the picture of Simone in the paper, and that is the girl he believes he gave a ride to the case, unequivocally according to him. Now, is he accurate? Is he correct? At this point in time, we may never know. Uh, obviously, that's a, a piece of the puzzle that is, is what I'm trying to continue to verify or uh, you know confirm or dispel, so to speak. But he was pretty adamant that this was the girl. You know, he was confident that it was Simone. Um, and, and some of the small talk alone, you know, he he told her he was from Framingham. She told him allegedly that she was from the next town over. Um, and then the description, physical description, and clothing description seems to jive, which is quite a lot of consistent information from a guy that, by all accounts, had no idea who Simone was until seeing that article. A few possibilities come to mind. We hate to speculate too much without knowing the person, but we wondered if the clockmaker himself could have been involved in Simone's disappearance. Sure, it would be an odd strategy to go to the police at all, but the annals of true crime are filled with that sort of thing. Some killers like to play with law enforcement, or at least they like to develop some feeling of control over the police. The Last Stone, an excellent true crime book by Mark Bowden about the disappearance of the Lion Sisters, is all about a perp who engaged in that kind of behavior, a man who needlessly inserted himself in the investigation from the beginning. We asked Detective Godino if he thought the clockmaker could be a viable suspect. If what he's telling us is true or partly true, then it's certainly a possibility. Because if he's telling us, if what he's telling us is true, then he's the last identifiable human being to have seen her, right? 
which leaves the possibility of did he drop her off as stated or did he not? Those are really the only two options. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean he he's involved or did anything outside of what he explained, but it really puts the case on the cable quite definitively if it's true. You know, it's if he dropped her off there, then then the case needs a lot more focus on the Cape. And we've done some media outreach down on the Cape with the Cape Cod Times and stuff like that. Didn't, didn't get as much feedback, unfortunately, that we got from the Metro West article. But, um, you know, that's something we'll probably continue to explore. You know, as this case gets older, the time is of the essence more and more because, you know, people, st- you know, there's a lot of people I've been excited to try and interview come to find that, you know, unfortunately they're, they're no longer with us. So it's difficult to, to verify this gentleman's story. Now, I did, like I said, spoke to his son, which was something I'll probably revisit on this case. But, you know, it's a conversation that um, never happened between this gentleman and his family. He never mentioned this to his family, a, a trip, which I feel like, you know, you know, if I'm 70 years old and I get pulled over by a cop and they have a girl with them and they say, you want to give her a ride? I might share that story with my family, but he never did. So it's one of those things like, is it true? Is it not true? You know, what was this gentleman's condition when he came into Sherburn PD in 1986? We don't know those things, unfortunately, but it, it would be nice to determine if it was fact or not, because then we could say, okay, well, this guy either dropped her off, like I was saying earlier, or, or didn't. Those are, I mean, there's not much wiggle room there. It's either he did what he said or he didn't. And if he didn't, then it's much more of a person of interest, so to speak. And if he did, then he's a helpful witness on the surface, at least. And where do we go from there is, would be the next, next step on, on the case. We also wondered if the man had a criminal record. Detective Godino said the clockmaker didn't have anything in his past to indicate that he'd be involved in a crime like this. And, at the time of Simone's disappearance, the clockmaker was in his 70s. That seems to be an unusual time in life for a man to commit his first murder. Godino has no plans to identify the man at this time. We will say that it's unusual that the clockmaker got Simone's clothing right for a few reasons. Anya has never picked up a hitchhiker, but I have done so twice in my life. Both cases involved women looking like they were in some kind of trouble on the side of the road. Otherwise, I'd have just kept on driving. One of those occurrences happened about 10 years ago, around the same length of time that the clockmaker waited before going to police. I have vague recollections of the conversation I had with this hitchhiker, and I could even give a sketchy description of what she looked like. But I certainly don't remember anything about the clothing she was wearing. It seems odd that the clockmaker had such a vivid memory of his passenger's garments. Because, as Detective Godino said, this older gentleman wouldn't have heard that anywhere else. A mistaken description of the outfit that Simone was last seen in had been printed out on a missing persons flyer. It incorrectly had her wearing a wraparound skirt, purple boots, silver jewelry, and a broad-brimmed hat. In reality, she was donning a white t-shirt, ripped and patched up blue jeans, and white high tops. Simone had a style we'd call boho today, so she was also decked out in jewelry, a necklace with turquoise stones, bracelets, and spoon rings. 
She was also carrying a gray duffel bag with her dark blue polyester skirt and vest. That was the much-loathed Rainbow Restaurant uniform. There's also the matter of the alleged interaction with the state trooper. Kevin and I were both pretty confused by that detail. I don't think that would ever happen today. I mean, barring some very bizarre circumstances. Back then, I talked to some troopers, some officers that were on the job back in the 70s, and even they were kind of skeptical about that. You know, I wasn't obviously around back then and wasn't working. So by today's standards, it's mind-boggling to think that a, an officer would or a trooper would do that. Back then, I, I, I suppose I could see it happening as, a, as at least not outlandish, maybe not, maybe frowned upon, but not like, oh my God, you gave a, what do you mean you gave a girl to a random stranger? Like, you know, that's just crazy talk today, but maybe something that maybe could have happened. Back then, you know, sees an older gentleman, he's heading to the Cape, seems harmless, you know, maybe he looks into him a brief moment on the car stop and then feels comfortable enough to, to, to letting this girl who at the time was, you know, 17, take the ride down there and could have happened uh i i skeptical but i don't see it as you know as outlandish back in 1977 uh, as it would be today and i think everyone would probably agree with that but while this story may be surprising but plausible for small town massachusetts in 1977 corroborating it has been a difficult task we need to we really need to be able to find out if that's true or not we, we have been unsuccessful in doing that. And unfortunately, like I said, he's long since passed away and we can't, we can't interview him. So that's a big part of the puzzle because if we can confirm that to be true, it, it really eliminates a lot of suspicion in this area. It takes us down to the Cape, really, pretty much immediately. It, it eliminates a lot of activity up here and a lot of time and energy that we've put into the in investigations of locations and persons of interest up in this area. My gut is that that story is maybe a misidentification. My gut is that she's probably still more likely in this area, in the Sherburne, Natick, Framingham area. I, 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 don't, I don't know if I, I believe that story fully. Um, but the part that's really difficult is that description. Um, and, and when I interviewed the waitresses and they provided the description eerily similar to that gentleman's, you know, the hair on your the back of your neck kind of stands up when you're hearing them describe it and you're recalling that this interview from 1986 produced a almost exact description. It's, it's tough to discredit that, that gentleman's story, um, particularly when you can't confirm or deny it at this point. Um, you know, I've reached out to the state police. They've been fantastic in checking their the record. They do have records, obviously, going back that far. But And even on that day, there was, there was a woman that was crawling to the records room for me for, for quite some time and wasn't able to locate anything that documented a stop of this particular gentleman on that particular day, you know, with every single stop called in, I, I don't know. I, I don't believe, uh, I don't believe, you know, every aspect of what they did was called in like it more or less is, is today. So that makes it difficult. I, I went with the, you know, the, the thinking of maybe it wasn't a trooper, maybe it was a municipal officer from, from that area, you know, Route 128, and like 109. You know, all those departments didn't have anything to verify or to dispel this guy's story of being stopped by one of their officers. I don't know if we'll ever be able to verify it or not, or dispel it or not, which is unfortunate, but 
there's still a lot of questions, but really it comes down to narrowing down the likely whereabouts of where she is to this day. In our opinion, the clockmaker's tale is one of the most baffling, frustrating wrinkles in this entire case. As Detective Godino said, confirming the story would leave Simone down on the cape, alive and unharmed, as she slipped from the old man's car. Whatever nightmare she ran into would likely have to start in that area. We asked Detective Godino to describe the Hyannis Airport Road area, where, according to the clockmaker, Simone was dropped off. Keep in mind that Hyannis is about an hour and 40 minute drive from Natick. Hyannis is situated on Cape Cod and features a ferry and an airport frequented by passengers seeking to get to Martha's Vineyard. That area, I mean, it's obviously not the same as it was back then, but the airport's still there. And I'm familiar, I've been down there a number of times and familiar with that particular location. And the reason it's it kind of makes sense, particularly for Simone, is because 28. So 28, I believe, goes all the way into Martha's, like, Woods Hole, which is where she would have most likely thumbed to take the ferry. She could have taken the airport. She could have taken Hyannisport, I believe, had ferries as well. Unfortunately, you know, all attempts to collect records from back then and rider information from back then is, you know, not worked out. Um, it doesn't seem like anybody has those types of records uh, from 1977. I certainly tried. <laughs> I've certainly pursued that that possible lead, um, you know, to verify if, in fact, maybe she hopped on the ferry or hopped on the uh, on the plane. And it, no one has anything that I could actually look at and, and verify, you know, whether or not, you know, they had a list of customers or passengers or what have you on a particular date back then so but the airport location makes sense you know a simple thumb down uh, route 28 in Hyannis would get you down to uh, Woods Hole of course since Detective Godino and his colleagues are currently unable to either confirm or invalidate so many aspects of the clockmaker lead they've got to keep an open mind about the case that means considering alternate theories altogether like other possible sightings. So there was some mention that she had intended to take a, a bus ride down, but that was, I think, since dispelled as anything to do with what she was intending to do um, by the officers and detectives from back then. Outside of the waitresses that saw her leave, there that is the last confirmed, definitive, confident sighting of her that we can say without question well maybe you know if you want to you know maybe question whether or not the waitresses are remembering correctly but you know we have two waitresses that definitively stated they were working with her it was her last day she left she started thumbing and that was the last we ever saw of her outside of those people that we've spoken to there's no one else that can say you know what I did see her later that afternoon she stopped and got an ice cream at uh, Mr. Hamburg in Sherburne or, at, uh, you know, at, you know, some other place. There was, there's no one else that can say that we've talked to that we've been able to identify that can say, yes, we saw her here. We saw her here. We have the story of the trooper and the older gentleman, but we can't say that was her for sure. It's a possibility. It certainly sounds like it could be her, but it's, there's nothing definitive. There's nothing concrete. There's no sighting outside of her last leaving work. 
We will note that Simone was in an off-and-on relationship with an older man around the time she vanished. That might sound like a big red flag, but Detective Godino told us that a number of different factors ruled this guy out as a suspect early on. His exact words were that it was impossible for this person to have been involved. But he also said there are a few different potential suspects, possible persons of interest who are still alive today. You know, there are some persons of interest, I would say, that are still around and still alive and well today. That requires more investigation, obviously, whether they're a witness or, or, or you know, may have information of substance to the case. We, we aren't we aren't 100 percent sure on, but there's a lot more interviews that we have to conduct. There's a lot more places that we have to try and look at. But the biggest mysteries really are, you know, we don't know who her housemates were. She lived in Framingham. She lived on a bottom floor apartment. We don't know who she lived in the house with. Why? I, I don't know. I've gotten some old historical records from that area in Framingham, but I don't believe it lists any housemates of hers at that location. Uh, and a lot of the neighbors that may have been there are no longer with us, unfortunately. So it's tough to collect information about who she was living in that home with. And, you know, obviously they would be of great interest to interview if we were able to identify them, particularly if they're obviously still around. But when young women vanish without a trace, it's tempting to go looking for another explanation. Serial killers have been known to target hitchhikers. Students of crime know all too well about the tragic results of catching a ride with the wrong person. The Santa Rosa Hitchhiker Murders saw seven unsolved homicides of female hitchhikers occur in California in the early 70s. Serial killer and rapist Edmund Kemper targeted female hitchhikers in Santa Cruz, California around the same time. Female hitchhikers made up a number of victims of serial killer Gerard John Schaefer, a sheriff's deputy in Florida who carried out a reign of torture and terror. Still other murderers went after male hitchhikers, like California's freeway killer Randy Kraft. So we were curious whether or not there was any possibility that a serial predator could have been active in this area at the time, from Natick down to Martha's Vineyard. We even popped over to the Murder Accountability Project, a nonprofit that tracks crime data, including unsolved killings and possible serial murders. We wanted to see if anything stuck out to us. Nothing did. But Detective Godino said there is one case that stands out as having a possible connection. There's been one particular case that I've actually met with the... Uh, agency and the, and the detective that is currently handling the case and it's out of Burlville, Rhode Island actually this girl by the name of Janine Callahan so Janine Callahan went missing and she actually worked in downtown Natick as well, um, I believe it was like a Zares department store and you know, she had just gotten an apartment in Natick I think just shortly before she went missing you know, not the same town that she got the apartment in, but, you know, she had just been exploring apartments. Simone had just been exploring apartments. They both worked in downtown Natick. 
uh, and they both went missing. Um, obviously, a couple of years apart. 1985. Okay, so 1985, she went missing, um, and she was she was actually float, her her remains were found, I believe, in Burlesville, Rhode Island. I don't think that case has ever been solved, but there are some interesting similarities, you know, similar age um, uh, between her and, and Simone. Uh, obviously, similar working vicinities and kind of similar circumstances with the apart the recency of the of each person getting their own their own apartment. Um, you know, one in Framingham, one in Natick, but some similarities. Um, nothing that definitely links them but it's certainly um, something I've discussed with that agency and that, that particular detective down there and we've exchanged obviously information and notes on, on each other's cases and it's something that's a possibility but nothing that suggested to be you know a certainty at all that's for sure. Okay picture this it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Your words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. It's upsetting to talk about all of the horrific possibilities of what may have befallen the 17-year-old girl. That's an element of all missing persons cases, where a crime definitely seems to have taken place. The unknown is a terrifying thing. That brought up another idea for us, though. Could some people know where Simone is without knowing what they know? Could she be a Jane Doe in a medical examiner's office somewhere? Maybe her remains were discovered unrecognizable in some far-off place that had never heard of her case. It's a grim thought, but something worth exploring. And Detective Godino told us that he gets a steady stream of comparison requests via NamUs. I get contacted probably a few times a year from people looking to see if, you know, we've compared Simone's information, dental records, DNA to this Jane Doe or that Jane Doe or, or what have you. You know, if there's someone that pops up, whether or not I think it's her or not, um, that hasn't been cross-referenced to Simone, I'll send a, a, a notification to the National Center and they do a great job of making sure that 
whatever we have on Simone is cross-referenced with that suggestion by the public, and we either eliminate it or, you know, confirm it to, to be her, obviously. Um, obviously, uh, you know, that has not happened at this point, but um, she's been cross-referenced, I believe, I want to say like 30 or 40 um, unidentified, 32 she's been compared to. And, you know, that's from all over the country, whether it's California, Virginia, Ohio, Georgia, there's a whole... Uh, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Tennessee, Illinois, Massachusetts, North Carolina, Arkansas, so Kentucky. There's a bunch of parties, whether it's, you know, maybe there was some jewelry that was on um, some remains that was consistent with some jewelry that she used to wear. Um, we would we would compare that party, uh, whether it was a female, age 17, and about the same height and weight, whether she was found in California or not, we'd we'd make that comparison. So anything that comes to light that looks to be a possible link to her, we're going to we're going to do a comparison if, if a comparison can be can be done. But there is one big forensic setback regarding Simone's case the detective Godino must contend with. The most unfortunate part is the lack of DNA on this case. We do have DNA, but it's from paternal uncles, which leave some room for, you know, possibly missing a, a comparison. I'm, I'm not 100% on that, but I'm, t- I'm told that DNA from a paternal uncle is not, let's say, as good as her biological mother, so to speak. But needless to say, we, we have some important pieces. We were able to collect DNA. One of the detectives prior to me looking at this case from Sherburn was able to meet with both uncles and get the DNA um, in the system on this case, which was incredibly important just to have some semblance of DNA. The dental records are obviously important. So those are things we rely on still to this day, even though they were obtained long, long ago. One possible um, break in that regard is DNA from the the biological mother. As a result of follow-up with um, the stepsister, we were able to get some old cards that Simone's mom had sent. And back then there was no, you know, self-adhesive stamps. So we believe she had licked these stamps and affixed them to the envelope. So those are two items that I actually have in evidence that we need to submit to the, the FBI to see if we can get, you know, a viable DNA sample from them to add to the case. While her disappearance is still a mystery, we are fairly convinced that Simone was murdered. Knowing what we know about her, it seems near impossible that she ended up hitching out of town without ever looking back. But given that the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children has released an age progression for Simone, we asked Detective Godino whether or not there's a slim chance she could still be alive. I mean, I guess anything's possible. You know, that we've been working with the National Center uh, for Missing and Exploited Children and the, the FBI on the case for the past several years, pretty much since I took, took a review of it back in, like I think it was 2014 and 15. Those were two entities that I reached out to, and they've been in the fold for a while, but it, the case has kind of just been, had been sitting with not a ton of activity. So we kind of got them on board, and both of them, you know, great in helping us. And the National Center, I believe, put together that age-progressed image just as a, like I said, at this point, we have nothing to lose by trying anything and everything, whether that's age-progressed photos, media pushes it through uh, the new, you know, the local newspapers, interviews like this, stories on the local news channels. We're, 
I'm pretty much open to anything. <laughs> Not that we don't have some interesting pieces to this case that are still viable and need to be worked on. Any help from any one uh, is, you know, we're willing to 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 dive in with 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 both feet and try and at the very least at the very least recover uh, recover her and, and, and get her to to a proper resting place if, if that's the if that's the fate that Simone saw um, you know could she be alive I suppose it's a possibility I highly 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 doubt it I've looked into banking records I've looked into the Social Security Administration I would imagine it would be difficult for a 17 year old to change her identity and obtain a new social back then and everything through those avenues suggests there's been nothing active with her social security number active with her uh, the, the few banking records that we had uh, everything seems to have stopped cold in 1977 you know we looked into seeing whether or not her social was used for employment tax returns, anything since then, and that struck, I think that was, might have been 2018 or 19 that I did that, and they confirmed there was nothing, and they specifically said nothing since 1977, so kind of definitive to me at least, um, but anything's possible, I suppose, uh, you know, but I, I don't, un- unfortunately, I'm, I'm not optimistic on, on that on that being a, a, a real possibility. Detective Godino said he will continue to work on Simone's case, but he still needs the public's help. I, I will talk to anybody about anything associated with her and or the case, um, and they can simply call the, the Sherburne Police Department just a generic line and, and, and ask to speak with the detective regarding the Simone writing her case, and it, it'll come to me at this stage. Hopefully that little piece, no matter how big or small it is, can help further the case and, and push it you know, along, just advance the case. Whether it's ultimately to solve it or not, we, we don't know. But anything is, is worth calling in on this case if, if you actually have something to offer. And whether you knew her, whether you lived with her, whether you worked with her. Because I don't doubt that there's people that we haven't spoke to, obviously, particularly the people that lived with her in that house in Framingham on Linden Street. Those are people we want to talk to, whether it was a classmate of hers that remembers someone she used to hang out with or, you know, or or whatnot. Anything. We'll take anything at this point, no matter how big or small, and they can just simply call the, the police department. At this point, the case is all about finding Simone. The primary goal of this case is to find her. And you know, give the remaining family and friends the peace of mind that she's found, she's been brought home and put to proper rest. Like, that's really the goal of this case. It's not to, I mean, obviously, a, a, a you know, a portion of the case is to try and find out who did this and, you know, are they able to be held responsible or not. But that's really not the goal at this point is to it's to recover Simone it's to find Simone um, and to bring her home and, and to put her to to the proper rest that she, she deserves you know I've kind of felt like there has been some hesitancy whether it's this case or other cases for people to come forward because they don't want you know maybe, maybe someone knows something and they don't want to come forward because 
they don't want to impact someone's life if they happen to have some involvement or have known about what happened to her and never came forward. I, I don't want there to be any like hesitancy in coming forward uh, on this case for fear that it, you know you're going to uh, you know impact you know anything in terms of. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't want people to think to be hesitant to come forward because they think that it's going to negatively impact somebody. We're trying to recover her. That's the goal at this point. Everything after that is really secondary. We're trying to recover Simone. That is what we are focused on pretty much exclusively. And we don't want anyone to be hesitant to report something that they know um, for fear that it might you know, impact someone uh, you know, that might have had knowledge and never came forward like we're, we want any information we can anything we can get to recover her is, is really what we're looking to do because Simone certainly has not been forgotten Betsy still wants answers about her stepsister the independent girl she used to skate on frozen ponds with Detective Godino has met with her a number of times but being the only detective with the Sherborne Police Department he feels he's not always able to give the case the undivided attention it requires. It's difficult to balance the various roles I have here with undivided attention on a case like this, which is honestly what it needs. It needs, frankly, a team, <laughs> a team of people undividedly investigating this. That would be the ideal situation. But but yeah, the stepsister has been probably the best source of information and obviously the most actively involved um, in, in terms of, um, you know, family contacts. Simone's mom has since passed. Her stepfather has since passed. Simone's mother's uh, partner has since passed. Uh, and we're talking, all like, like last month, we're talking decades before I really even got a chance to, to dig into this. But So she's really like the last, sor- you know, family source that I've, I've been in touch with. We'd like to say that we wish there were more Detective Godinos out there. He may not feel he's able to do enough for this case, but having researched the disappearance and seen all the attention he's brought to Simone's story, and having heard about some of the details he dug up, we respectfully submit that we are impressed with the work done by him and his colleague in Natick. In recent years, partly thanks to the advent of advancing DNA technology, Many cases previously thought to be permanently cold have heated up considerably. But that's not true everywhere. As you've already heard on our show, we've been calling on the top law enforcement agency in our home state of Indiana, the Indiana State Police, to establish a dedicated, specially trained cold case unit with an actual budget. In our view... Every squad should dedicate resources for cold cases. It's not necessarily realistic that they all get solved, at least not in the short term. But police agencies should all have a point person. A point person with the energy and the drive to do things like deep research and interviews and engaging with the public. A person like Detective Godino. The thought of her just, you know, if things were ended tragically which certainly seems to be the case it's kind of a tough thing to think about you know this 17 year old girl that was just trying to get home or just trying to 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 get down to you know a vacation spot with her mom and she never made it and you know 
where she wound up, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of sad to think that, you know, she's just out there and, and her family can't pay her the respects that they want. Her friends can't. And, you know, that's what we, we want to do. We want to be able to recover what we can recover Simone and just, you know, you know put her, put her to, to, to a peaceful rest. In the meantime, he'll keep telling the story of Simone, the story of a young woman who should have been able to make it out to her mother on Martha's Vineyard. A woman who should be 62 today, who should be looking back on her time working at the Rainbow Restaurant and her little apartment in Framingham and her spoon rings and the warm memories of her mother and stepsister and stepfather and all the risks she took thumbing and forging out on her own, and the sea breeze on the vineyard. She should be alive. Simone should have gotten the chance to think back and smile over the summer she was 17. Please, if you have any information that could help with Simone's case, call the Sherborne Police Department at 508-653-2424 and ask for Detective Godino. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on the Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to the Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure and send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.